of a Savior when we look with the honesty of the standard of Scripture at our lives and find that we have woefully and held deservedly fallen short of the glory of our God. This encourages us all the more when we look to Christ, however, when we realize the extent of the cost that He paid to secure a sinner as wretched as we are. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance of this salvation in Christ alone. We need you. We need you for the atoning work on Calvary, dear Jesus. We need your spirit for the enabling grace for the challenges of each day. We need your word to guide, direct, and establish, and to inform us of the way that we should walk. We need each other as the obligation of the weak to bear with, or the strong to bear with the failings of the weak encourages us as the saints, each part contributing to the whole, operates according to the head Jesus Christ in ways that are mutually encouraging one believer to another. We need you for those trials too big for us. Lord, when your grace is required to encourage us to endure, to steadfast, steadfast and movable, abounding in the work of the Lord with faith that you ordained even the difficulties for your great purposes, to shape and conform us and transform us through the renewing of our minds forevermore into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We need you. And we need you this day and in this service as we now open your word and seek to have greater understanding and appreciation and ability to proclaim and to teach our children and others, those whom we may come in contact with, the message of hope found in Christ alone. I pray that you would open our souls to receive my mouth to proclaim and the hearer, Lord, to be encouraged to proclaim as well, following all according to the Holy Spirit this day as we turn to the Scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. With hearts encouraged, I, encouraged, I trust. What a great blessing and privilege we have today to turn to the Scriptures. And to give these scriptures our assent. Last week we were in Psalm 119 for our Psalm of Month series. Today we are in Genesis 44. While you're turning there, i just remind you last week, we saw that the heart of the psalmist expressed in Sodhay stanza number 18 is that the word of God, again, according to the great theme of the psalm, is sufficient. The word in and in so much as the word of God reveals the nature and character of God, and secondly, demands our assent, and that sufficiency is eternally true. The righteousness and faithfulness of our Lord is enduring forever, and His appointment authority has established, according to Himself and to His nature, that which will never be altered or changed and continues to be that unit of account or standard whereby hearts are measured according to the holiness of God. And as we considered that last week, we're reminded that all of Scripture— falls into this category, whether it's a narrative portion in the life of Joseph we read today, or one of those great acrostic psalms in the Psalter that extols the majesty of God's holy truth. Today we turn to Genesis 44 and consider another beautiful portion of Scripture, verses 18 through 34. I've titled this message, and you might use it as a title for this portion as well, Judah's Intercession. This is the brother of Joseph, who is speaking to Joseph, but unbeknownst to him at the time, interceding, that is, pleading the case for his youngest brother, Benjamin. Beautiful language indeed, illustrating a number of things today. My goal is to take from this message of Judah uh, an emphasis 
of the major themes of Genesis and all the Bible, and in so doing, to preach the gospel according to Judah. This is Judah's intercession. With your Bible and hearts open, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today as we reverently hear what the Lord has proclaimed to us in His Holy Word. This is Genesis 44, 18-34. Here we have the Word of our Lord. Then Judah went up to him and said, this is to Joseph, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. 24. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and, if I, have ever, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. 30. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then at his life, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his, with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Arc, A-R-C, the whole scope of the story, from the introduction characters, then the plot and the unfolding drama, to its conclusion. We see in the scriptures, particularly in verse, uh, chapters 37 through 50 of Genesis, the redemptive ark specifically will cover in Judah's family, but this also applies to the covenant family. Jacob's household called by God, carried the lineage of the Messiah forward, and his work in preserving them, their hearts, and changing them, and conforming them, and using circumstances, incidents in their life, even trials of anguish and sorrow and hardship and famine, all to that great end. <clears throat> One of the effects of God's work in the hearts of the covenant family is evident here as Judah's heart begins to change or has significantly changed and as evidence we hear his intercession for his younger brother in such glorious and tender terms. Men who once sold their brothers, Joseph's brothers, into slavery, motivated by resentment and material gain in chapter 37, now offer one of their own, Judah, as their representative, as a servant 
to the, the second in command of, Pharaoh's, uh, of Pharaoh in Egypt. They offered Judah as a servant. Judah offers himself to liberate their father's other favorite son or last favored son from bondage. This, of course, being Benjamin of the long departed beloved wife, beloved bride, Rachel. This we see in the scriptures is a dramatic, stress-tested example of repentance, a complete heart change, a 180-degree turn in motivations in the lives of these brothers and in their hearts, intentions, and in their decisions. In the case of Joseph, as we recall his story, he was abused by his brothers in spite of his innocence. In this case, Benjamin has been falsely accused. You remember, strategically, he was framed for theft. The brothers leave, and the servant of Joseph sneaks the money back into their sacks, as well as his important drinking goblet into the sack of Benjamin, sends his servants to catch up with them as they uh, head back to, the, to Canaan. And then when they find Benjamin, they say, uh-oh, he's in trouble now. He has to be the servant of my master for this in this case. So he's falsely accused. So, but this, this is a crime, of course, that he did not commit. And his brothers defend him in this circumstance, even at the cost of offering up their own lives, in Judah's case, or well-being, in this exchange for Benjamin's freedom. It's a dramatic change. The events of chapter 37, as I keep referencing, which begin this narrative, and the events of chapter 44 are a sharp contrast indeed. What accounts for the change? The Holy Spirit of God softening the hearts of sinners as they begin to change, as He conforms them to the image of his, their, their Savior to come and His purposes in the meantime. This chapter continues to document the redemptive arc and the story of the covenant family. God is showing great mercy to the household of Jacob, even and albeit through trial and testing. It is clear at the close of chapter 44 that the brothers empathize with, they share the heart of their father, and they share his anguish and pain regarding the potential loss of Jacob's one remaining, as far as they know, favored son, Benjamin. The one-time self-centered, vengeful hearts and mindset that would take advantage of a sibling for the sake of personal gain or for personal vendetta is so far removed from Judah's intercessory appeal that we just read that it reads as if he is a different person. And in a sense, he is. God has changed the heart of these men who had conspired to murder a brother 20-plus years ago. This moment marks the beginning of a Judah-Benjamin connection, I suggest, that will develop for centuries. What did Judah and Benjamin have in common? Before this point, not much, other than they shared the same stepfather. But Judah and Benjamin would forever be associated with one another following this event. Even in the geographical proximity of their two tribes, their shared national interest, the cultural identity, and the messianic purpose of their two family lines. The southern kingdom, as distinct from the north, would have a calling to be the area from which the Messiah would come and would return after exile and pave the way for redemption. Where did this relationship start such that, you know, as the scriptures continue, 
Judah is used synonymous with Benjamin. Well, this, I suggest, relationship starts all the way back to this intercession of Judah himself on behalf of his little brother, which establishes the groundwork, no doubt unbeknownst to him at the time, that will endure for centuries and bring forth eventually, through their family line, the very Messiah who would be your Savior, mine, and the Savior of all, who placed faith in him of old and placed faith in him today. What a glorious picture of God's mighty work, unbeknownst to us, from the big picture, heaven's eye, panoramic view of history. This is the advantage that the book of Genesis gives us and even our text today. Let us consider our passage today under the term of covenant. I'm going to make the case that this intercessory appeal takes the shape of a formal or dynastic covenant document. I'll have a little explanation on that in a minute. The heading for today's sermon is Judah's Covenantal Appeal. And under this, I've chosen three headings or three points. Number one, preamble and prologue. Number two, stipulations and obligations. And number three, ratification and succession. So those are technical terms for the structure of a covenant document, and we'll explain them in process. This is a formal appeal, and it's also a tender appeal as well. It's an incredible, uh, an incredible speech that we hear. And let me begin with that. Under preamble and prologue, we have here in Judah's words an exceptional address. This was emphasized to me as I began to study. I felt a little conviction that I hadn't noticed this just independently of myself, but as I read those who had a deeper familiarity with the original language and had studied much in this passage, quotes like this began to surface. This is Martin Luther. He said, I would give very much to be able to pray to our Lord God as well as Judah prays to Joseph here. For it is a perfect specimen of prayer, the true feeling that there ought to be in prayer. Luther sees this as a model appeal of a lesser authority to a greater on behalf of something for which their heart yearns, a model of prayer. Another commentator, Benson, said the following, Indeed, the whole speech is most exquisitely beautiful and perhaps the most complete piece of genuine and natural elegance to be found in any language. That is high praise. You ever buy a book from the bookstore and you look at the back and you see who's endorsed it? It's like exceptional prose. So-and-so who's an ex expert in the field or basically is another celebrated author might say. Well, if you look through the commentaries, you find exceptional praise for this speech over and over again. What is so significant about what we have just read? Isn't it just another passing detail in the text? Well, those who have studied deeply don't think so. As, this, as scholars maintain, and I would agree, this speech is a central and standalone sort of gem on the string of God's purposes through the Old Testament. You could take these words of Judah and draw so much thematic and uh, an amazing material that summarizes the heart of our God in redemption, that he is uh, using the megaphone of history to proclaim. It prophesies, it proclaims to us a number of things, which I hope to cover a few in this message. 
the power of the Holy Spirit to transform hearts, the purposes of God in difficulty and trial and endurance, the relationship between a higher authority and a lesser and how to approach them in a godly way, the love that one who would lay down his life for another demonstrates in a sacrificial act of self-giving, and on and on it goes. This is an exceptional address. Now, one might look at it and say, well, isn't it just a repeat of what's gone before? Judah is recounting in this narration what we've already read, and that is true. But remember this, saints. Put this down as a marker in your own Bible study. When the Bible repeats something, that means you shouldn't skip over it because it's, you've already read it before. That means you should pay even closer attention because it's using, the Bible is using that literary device of repetition to draw attention to how important it is. I've already read this. I can speed read now. No, I'm hearing this again. It must mean it's extra important to the text. Uh, Meredith Klein was a scholar who did a lot of work on what he called dynastic covenant documents. And these were drawn from contemporary societies around some of the, um, this in the last century, scholarship unveiled more about this covenant structure that we see in books like Deuteronomy. He argued, and I think it's indisputable, that even the entire book, the second giving of the law of Deuteronomy, is shaped according to one of these historic dynastic covenant structures. They begin with a preamble, and that's an introduction of the two parties involved. The technical language is suzerain and vassal. Suzerain is sovereign, vassal is this party that is subjected or subservient to them. So a greater and lesser party document, a basically an arrangement or a treaty or a layout, so formal documentation of the relationship between two parties. It begins with the preamble, and in the preamble, you have the introduction of the parties, you have the glory of the sovereign, and you have also uh, typically the vassal, the lesser party introduced. Secondly, there's a historical prologue. That's a brief history of the relationship between the greater and the lesser party. The structure is ubiquitous. It's everywhere throughout Scripture. It's super basic to the way that God has ordered relationships. Number three, stipulations. What is the requirement of the greater party on the lesser? This would be his law, his decree, his will. What he stipulates is important. And number four, ratification. This would be blessings for obedience or consequences, curses for disobedience. Then I, that was often accompanied by a covenant sign. That pattern is, of course, throughout Scripture. And then finally, there were provisions for succession, continuation of that covenant. So those are the five main points of a covenant, dynastic covenant structure. Preamble, prologue, stipulations, ratification, and succession. So under preamble and prologue, we have the sovereignty, we have sovereignty acknowledged by the words of Judah. And in this case, we see in verse 16, he has introduced himself to Joseph, recognizing not just Joseph's authority, but a greater authority still. Verse 16, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. This is the exchange between the greater party, Joseph, and the lesser Judah. Judah enters this exchange with humility recognizing that he and his brothers are indeed at the mercy of Joseph. But he also recognizes a greater authority still over whom he presumes as a pagan ruler second in command of Egypt, and that would be Yahweh, the one true God. Uh, he humbly submits 
to the discipline and to the accountability and reckoning of the one true God when he says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now this covenant acknowledgement is so basic that it is the beginning of every legitimate relationship with the Lord. The gospel begins with us realizing the relationship between a holy God, the sovereign, the suzerain, and ourselves, the wicked party, who is an infraction of his will and is at his mercy and has no leg to stand on, the vassal, the sinner. When we come to the Lord, we acknowledge that we have fallen short of his glory and that his law determines that according to that, we deserve eternal separation, destruction, judgment, and wrath of God. But when the Lord begins to soften our hearts to that reality, we can come to him humbly and through Christ eventually boldly as he changes our hearts and gives us that assurance of salvation that there is a way that the sovereign has made by his purposes according to his will alone for us to be in right standing with him for that covenant to be restored. This basic framework is echoed throughout the scriptures. It applies to us and it's illustrated here. Judah acknowledges the sovereignty of Joseph over him and more importantly still, he acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Greg Bonson wrote great material on how to be faithful, to proclaim the gospel and apologetics, defense of the faith according to these kind of terms. And he used this term called humble boldness in approaching the unbeliever or approaching uh, and, and ultimately in approaching the Lord. And the idea is this, that we have a certain humility uh, recognizing that we share the same common ground as a sinner, but we also have a certain boldness acknowledging his authority. And Joseph has this kind of, I'm sorry, ben, Judah has this kind of attitude as he interacts with Joseph. He's both humble, realizing he's at the mercy of Joseph, at the mercy of God, and does not deserve a hearing, nevertheless appeals to mercy and grace. But he also comes boldly knowing that God, who is sovereign, is over all, and he is uh, making his statement and organizing his appeal accordingly, acknowledging the sovereignty of the Lord and the sovereignty of Joseph secondarily. Reminds us of Jesus who stood before Pilate on that fateful day just before he was sent to the cross. And Pilate says, you're going to remain quiet. Don't you know the power that I have? And Jesus professes before Pilate, respectful albeit saying, you would have no authority, John 19, 11, unless it was given to you by my father. If we ever are called to stand before people who are in, humanly speaking, a hierarchical superior position to us, we need to acknowledge these two things too, that God is over them and over us. And as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, we have the right and the authority and duty, especially as ministers of the gospel, to call even people who are in authority in our government to repentance in so much as they stand judged by their sovereign, Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God over them and over us. And even as we do this, we recognize that God has ordained people, kings, magistrates, judges, people in authority to rule according to the way that he has ordered things. So we want to be respectful and acknowledge that position. We also want to be bold and acknowledge the ultimate authority over all of us. And this is a vision for the church to interact in such a way as to honor God and to honor the king but to not go beyond that and to infer that honoring the king is unconditional. We are subject to him, and so are kings and people in authority. Sovereignty acknowledged. And then there's the historical prologue, if you will. Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word. This is verse 18 in my Lord's ears. This is Judah. 
using that term Lord to respectfully, respectfully refer to Joseph again, says, let not your anger burn against your servant. And then he begins to recount the nature of the relationship so far between the brothers and Joseph. He says, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Once again, acknowledging his authority. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father and a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father. Kids, who is Joseph's father? Who is Judah's father? Do you guys remember? Jacob is correct. Thank you. He is an old man and a younger brother and a young brother, the child of his old age. And who is the youngest among the brothers? Remind us, kids. Benjamin. Benjamin is correct. We have Jacob, the dad. We have Benjamin, the youngest. We have Judah now advocating before Joseph, their other brother they don't realize yet for the sake of Benjamin. He says, Judah says, his brother is dead, meaning he presumes that Joseph has long died having been sold into slavery 22-some years prior. And he alone, Benjamin, is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. This is the history of the relationship between the greater and lesser party, if you will. They had submitted to the authority of Joseph and had agreed to his terms to go back and to convince their father to allow the beloved remaining son, Benjamin, to travel with them. Judah's words give evidence I suggest, of repentance. So the second table of the law, the last six commandments, begin with, I would argue, the most important. The second table of the law regulates human behavior, human-to-human relationships. And the fifth commandment is what? Kids, another trivia question for you. Does anyone know what the fifth commandment is? It's honor. Very good. This, by, way, by the way, is a commandment that also has a promise. Does anyone know what the promise is? Honor your father and mother that you're... Awesome. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. As Judah recounts the history of this brief interaction between himself and Joseph, and his brothers and Joseph, he testifies to steps and actions that have been taken that illustrate repentance. These brothers are beginning to live their life according to the law of God, laws that would be codified and revealed more particularly still in generations to come. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, we read that fifth commandment. Well, long before those words were written, some 400 or so years, this law was written on the hearts of these brothers as they repented. Whereas at one point they had dishonored their father and they had sought to kill and then sell one of his favorite sons, Joseph, at the time into slavery. Now they are honoring him. They care about their father's feelings. They defer to him and recognize that they serve, uh, that it is right for them to uh, take into account his wishes. And they, even at the cost of their own livelihood, they advocate for Jacob's on Jacob's behalf, even when he's not there, even in the case of a brother he loves and to some degree or in some sense more than, that, than them. So Judah's words give evidence, repentance, according to the second table of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself summarizes the second table, and it begins with the fifth commandment. The demands of God's law governing human relationships begin with the commandment to honor your father and mother. And notice, this is the first commandment, as the scriptures say with the promise, that you may live long in the land. And it's interesting to see, as the narrative unfolds, that this promise was temporally true. 
for the people of God at this time. That is to say, because God changed their heart and they did honor their father and mother, as a consequence, the land that was overflowing with provisions in the time of famine became their salvation from certain death. That is, a covenant family lived long in the land that the Lord gave them as salvation from famine, as a consequence and a reward, if you will, for their changed heart and obediently following the law of God. So this is Judah's covenant appeal in terms of its exceptional nature, its sovereignty acknowledged in this historical prologue which illustrates hearts being changed, even according to the standards, the precepts, and the principles of God's word. Unbeknownst to Judah at the time, I'm sure one day, thousands of years later, parents would teach the importance of this commandment, the fifth commandment, using Judah's speech here as an example. How do I know this is true? Because we're doing it right now. This is an example of honoring your father and mother, children, that is exemplified in Judah's case. And we see how important God's word is when we look at the contrast between the consequences of hatred and vengeance and disobedience and dishonor, and now the blessings of honoring the father and mother and walking in God's ways, clinging to him and submitting to him and the heart-changing power of his Holy Spirit that is going to come in with the great blessing and benefit of salvation from hardship, death, and famine. Amazing. Judah's covenant appeal first, according to preamble and prologue. Now let's go to second, stipulations and obligations. 24 through 31, Judah continues. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. Why not? Because the stipulations of the covenantal arrangement, if you will, with Joseph required that the youngest brother go with them. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother, Benjamin, is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, that wife being Rachel, those sons being Joseph and Benjamin. One left me, remember the brothers tricked him, that he was eaten by a wild animal, bringing back only his bloody robe, his bloody coat. And I said, Jacob, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since." 29, if you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Sheol, the place of the dead. 30, now therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, my father, Judah again, and the boy is not with us, as I come to your servant, my father, the boy is not with us, as his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. When, Jacob had, or when uh, Judah had gone back with his brothers, he had given the stipulations, the obligations of this arrangement to his father. The conditions of Egypt, were, or I'm sorry, the provisions of Egypt to save the covenant family from starvation were conditional. Conditional provisions. This covenant, all covenant frameworks, by the way, presuppose conditions. Let's spend a moment on here just uh, sharpening our understanding of the gospel. You've often heard it said, and I've heard very poor message preached, messages preached, that God's love is unconditional. Now this is true, but it is only true in reference to the nature of our works that is, in their saving efficacy. Do our works save us? 
They do, they do not. That is to say that our salvation is not conditional upon our works. But is salvation conditional on works? Well, in truth, the answer is yes, but it is the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, there is no salvation without the conditions of atonement being met by a substitute in our place. This is so important to remember. Perhaps you're well aware of this, but know that you interact with a world that has no idea what this means. Time and again, you'll hear people talking in religious terms or give their understanding of Christianity or what salvation or hope or Christ or salvation or what it means to be converted, and they miss this fact entirely. They consider the love of God to be completely arbitrary and have no cost associated with it. If you don't realize that a covenant ultimately is based, it has conditions, and those sat in a, as in, insofar as the gospel is con concerned, those conditions were met by Jesus Christ, then you will miss the message of hope entirely. And this covenantal negotiation is a foretaste of that. It pictures that. It, it, it's a covenantal framework that presupposes that the provisions of the uh, nation would be available to the family only if a son was given. The, frame, the framework of this relationship reminds us that God's love is not unconditional. It's only unconditional with respect to the nature of our works that are not saving, but in truth, much like Joseph's requirements for famine provisions, the cost of our relationship with the Lord is excruciatingly expensive. What is the cost of our salvation from spiritual famine? Well, a son is also required. In verses 27 and 28, Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never, never seen him since. Can you see Jacob in your mind? His head in his hands, stooped low, perhaps sitting on a stump or something, as I imagine, shaking his head back and forth. I have already lost one son. I cannot risk another. Yet it's certain death that they don't send him. He's caught in this, this catch-22. He says, 29, if you take this one from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. This is his son, Judah, who at one time sold his little brother, or his brother Joseph, into slavery, now recounting with heart changed and communicating to Joseph the pain and anguish and heart of the father. Nevertheless, the covenant terms remain. The conditions for provision are established. A son is required. Here is another echo of that significant message, or that message all through Genesis. I don't know if you guys remember this language, but all the way back to the days of Noah, and even prior to, we identified a theme that we kept resurfacing in this book, a significant son, right? In spite of all hope being lost, apparently, when man fell into sin, there was hope against hope in Eve. Perhaps this son will be the significant son who will crush the serpent's head. And is, as she raises Abel and he dies at the hands of Cain, she realizes Abel will not be hit. Cain's certainly not the first murderer. But then there's Seth. That son that came, the significant one, through whose line? And then the world, not long after, at least in the record, as far as the record is concerned, falls into such horrible corruption 
that all of the world is deserving complete, catastrophic, entire annihilation and judgment by the waters of God's wrath flooding the entire earth. Who will save humanity in this time of worthy judgment? One significant son. Kids, what was his name? Who was the son that was born that would spare, the, uh, spare humanity from the flood? God told him to build an ark. His name was? Noah. Very good. Noah, the significant son. Then Shem, Ham, and Japheth are born. And once again, we find through Shem and his line that the tents of Shem would become a dwelling place for the outskirts of the world. And the gospel goes forth yet again. And here again, in our text today, we see this message of significant son being the key to salvation resurfacing. And it is an excruciating cost, and it places a great demand on the father Jacob. But it is something that he must submit to. And doesn't it remind us of another significant son? In addition to those examples I just gave, we recall Genesis 22, which beams forth with pulsating glory and light the message of the substitute son. And this, of course, is the offering of Isaac on the altar where Abraham submits his only covenant child, the significant son, the one that was promised by the Lord himself to the fire and the knife. And you guys, we mentioned this last time we were preaching in this text, the Lord stays the hand. The covenant, and in his place, a ram is provided in the bush. However, there would be a significant son and Isaac prefigures him. And all the examples I gave before, as well as Benjamin, as well as Joseph serves somewhat in this role. And then Judah is actually the significant son through whom that family line, relationship with Benjamin in the southern kingdom would eventually give way in its lineage to the one, the ultimate one who would come. A son required for the famine of sin and the famine of the soul. And that son was who? Well, it was the son of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, Jesus Christ. This message is preached all the way back in this exquisite speech from Judah himself. A son is required for salvation. All the way back to Abraham and Isaac, a son must go through the pain. He must go through the sacrificial death, absorbing the wrath of God in order for there to be salvation. And when did this come to fruition and fulfillment? When John identified the Lamb of God, and then that Lamb went to Calvary and took the knife in his side on our behalf. Nevertheless, as we read, even though there's hope here, under these conditions, at this moment, for one like Jacob, the stakes could not be higher. This is a life and death proposition. And Judah communicates so well the anguish of his father. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy, verse 30, is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Jacob's catch 22. If Benjamin doesn't travel, certain death by famine will be the fate of the family. If he sends his youngest son... He risks losing the remaining son of his beloved bride. And now it seems that his fears are realized when the man of the land, the grand vizier, the grand steward, the second in command, demands that he remain as his slave and servant because of this supposed crime. This illustrates the ultimate terms of relationship with the Lord of Lords. 
The demand of faith is great. When we come to salvation, it is not a try this, you know, advertisement. You know, things are sold to us. We live in a commercialized society with promises of a money-back guarantee. The opportunity to try something, to test something, as if you were the sovereign, judging the worth of a product. And then if, you, if it's not up to your liking, you have the opportunity to return it. No one comes to Christ on terms like these. No one comes to Christ with their heart saying, you know what, what do I have to lose? This might be a better life. You know, I'll give it a try. I'll test. No, that is not how anyone comes to Christ. When someone comes to Christ, rather, it is an anguish of the heart more akin to Jacob realizing the stakes are high. That the demand of faith is an all-in proposition. That to come to Christ means that we lay down our life, we take up the cross, we die to the flesh, we count the highest of costs, in coming to our Lord. It might mean the loss, it will mean the loss of our sinful identity and exchange it for identity in Christ. It may mean the loss of our closest up till now friends who do not share our conviction and faith. It may drive a sword in some cases between family members, but what we gain in the love of Christ and a new family in the family of God and the promise of eternal life, reconciliation with Him, and the inheritance of glory, all of that cost is easy to count when we consider the promise. And this is what faith is required. If you do not believe that you are a sinner, and that Christ can save you, and that eternal life is a real thing, and that heaven is prepared for those who love Him, and that there is a new redemptive purpose for the whole arc of history that includes the remaking and establishing of God's righteous kingdom and fruition in a new heavens and new earth, that cost will be too high to you, for you. And you will not come or stay or persist or remain or persevere in the faith. However, with a heart like Jacob, when you realize that the covenant terms require an excruciating death to self or death to that which is most important to you, and you come to him, what you will find in this new birth, in this awakening, in this soul transformation, in this conversion to Christianity is a glorious reward beyond calculation that will open up. And those saints of old had faith that this was true. Abraham could send his son to the hill of sacrifice, knowing that God can raise the dead. God does raise the dead. We celebrated that recently. And there is a resurrection of the dead for all who are in Christ. Nevertheless, the stakes are high. We should not water down, soft pedal, compromise, or try to sell the gospel on human, secular, or popular terms. The stipulations and obligations of the gospel are pictured here, but also the glorious hope of redemption that Son required, that was offered in Christ, will yield salvation and life eternal. Finally, ratification and succession. Verse 32, Judah's covenant appeal continues. And here we have a ratification. So these are terms or blessings or requirements that the covenant holds he says, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, so Judah becomes a pledge for the life of Benjamin. Do you remember the phrase we used for this? To summarize, if the obligation is not met, the man himself will be the pledge. So if the obligation is not met, meaning the promise to return Benjamin safely to Judah, the man himself, Judah, will be the pledge. He will give himself in exchange. He will pledge his life as collateral for faithfulness to the covenant. He says, now therefore, and now Judah, 
and his strength and character, illustrating his changed heart, is going to offer himself in the place of another. He's going to hold to this terms that he had agreed to. The ratification of the covenant, which required the life for another if the obligation was not met. He says to Joseph, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his brothers. Judah is prefiguring the line of the tribe of Judah to come, who would give himself in a place of another. The blessings and curses commensurate with faithfulness require that a life be given in collateral, and if the obligation was not met, if, sin, if sinless perfection was not the human experience, then someone must die in our place in order for us to be freed from the bondage of sin, to be saved from the famine of hell. And Judah prefigures this. All covenants have these kinds of consequences attached to them, true biblical ones anyway. Dave and I were remarking this week about he had brought up the terms of covenant under the Mosaic order in Deuteronomy 28 and extensively there. You see the curses that are associated with unfaithfulness and, conversely, the blessings that attend those who follow in God's word and his way. And, and likewise, in the gospel, there is uh, curses that are required for those who fall short of their relationship with God. But, for those who t- but if there is one who could take that curse for us, then the blessings of promised new life are opened up to us once again. Judah's heart here prefigures, it speaks of penal substitution, penal penalty substitute in the place of another. In the place of another, Judah will satisfy the terms of covenant. He puts himself up as surety. The obligation will be met when he himself gives himself as the payment. He assumes in this federal headship role representing the brothers and in exchange, and uh, it in offering himself in exchange for Benjamin. And in this role, Judah, we see confession, we see intercession, and we see substitution. Indeed, we see the gospel according to Judah as he proclaims in this real-life example the terms and the conditions of the gospel to come. He would give his own life in exchange, offer his own life in exchange. The line of Judah's legacy would continue to hold forth this hope, and it would come to fruition in Jesus Christ. In offering himself, Judah, as a slave in exchange for his brother, Judah's testimony inspires immediate and joyful reconciliation. Just a little bit, spoiler alert for the next chapter. Instantly, immediately, Joseph is overcome with emotion. You can see this profound speech and its effect that had on the estranged brother, He could not control himself before all those who stood before him. 45.1, he, Joseph, cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Imagine the surprise on those boys' faces. His brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Nevertheless, Judah's intercession has such a profound effect that Joseph is reassured in that moment that these brothers have passed the test. There has been this trial period, and he knows now without a shadow of a doubt that they are repentant and their heart is changed. How does he know? Because he has heard the gospel proclaimed by his older brother Judah. He has heard a heart that once sold him into slavery out of animosity 
willing to give himself in exchange for his father's favored son. This was an incredible moment. Not only do we see the arc of redemption, redemption history pictured and prefigured in this, but we also see personally the redemptive arc of Judah himself. And another little spoiler alert, turn with me if you would to Genesis 49. It's just amazing. It's cool to kind of connect the dots through the course of scriptures, of the testimony, the life, the biography, and the message of Judah for in, as a for instance. And this is the patriarchal blessing shortly before Jacob dies. He professes a prophetic blessing over each one of his children. And when he comes to Judah, right, this represents, uh, realize, this represents the legacy, the prophetic lineage of this line, this tribe of Jacob, and what it will be known for on into the future. So we pick up in verse 8. Judah, the elderly Jacob says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, prophesying over this covenant son. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stood down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. This is the legacy prophesied of Judah. Now there is some perhaps unfamiliar ancient covenantal language in there, poetic pictures. What do they illustrate though? This guy is going to be surrounded by grapes and fields and vineyards overflowing with such bounty that there's no place to tie your donkey's colt except to one of these overflowing grapevines. That his garments normally washed in water. You wouldn't, see, oh, well, the wine is so overflowing, the abundance and the provision, the prosperity of his legacy and household is such that even his garments are washed in them. It's bathed in the glorious uh, provisions and influence such that his kingdom is a forever kingdom. Only through the tribe of Judah will the wish of the peoples through the ages long live the king ultimately prove true. Long live the king would be true of only one dynasty, that of Judah fulfilled in Christ, the forever king of kings who rules even right now. The scepter of Judah is in the hands of the lion of the tribe of Judah, proceeds as a two-edged sword from his mouth and an iron rod in his grasp to dash his enemies to pieces. He is the lion's club from the prey, my son, who has gone up, stooped down, crouched as a lioness, who dares rouse him. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the fearsome champion for whom all armies of the world and all authorities that have ever lived or boast some influence over mankind must bow before him and kiss him lest he be angry in the way and they are stacked upon the corpses of all his enemies who preceded him. His brothers shall praise him. His enemies will bow before him and be slaughtered if they don't repent. This is the legacy of Judah moving forward. And of course, it will be fulfilled in Christ. So let's connect the dots, shall we? Judah, 
all the way back in chapter 37 and 38, is known for corruption, selling his brother into slavery. His family goes down the tubes. Conviction, he is caught red-handed in this. Then repentance, in repentance, he demonstrates in our passage today confession, intercession, and substitution. And Judah's future is marked by glory, prophesied in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. A life in 38, which was marked by covenant betrayal, abdicated authority, moral catastrophe, and self-incrimination, has been miraculously and utterly transformed. The triumph, the prosperity, the dominion, and the immortality of Judah's legacy is an absolutely miraculous redemption story, and you and I are part of it. It's incredible. We look at these uh, passages in Scripture, and if we considered any one isolated from the rest, we might be left scratching our head what's going on here. When we see the glories of the gems on the string of that necklace of redemptive history strung together, we, and as the Spirit opens our eyes to that reality, we begin to marvel with those who have a Spirit-inspired, at least limited, limited at least understanding of the Word of God. And it gives us such encouragement and hope. How awesome is our God that he can turn one who once uh, had a liaison with a prostitute who ended up being his daughter that bore twins in this incestuous, diabolical scheme. How incredible is it that the redemptive power of the gospel is such that through that very family line, one day the king of kings the sinless Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Trinity taking on flesh in the incarnation, bearing the sins of his people, going to the cross. Death can't keep him in the grave. He stomps on the serpent's head on the third day, rises from the grave, only to 40 days later rise before the right hand of the Father and rule forever on his rightfully enthroned place of majesty and glory until every one of his enemies is reduced to his footstool. How incredible is this story? This is a work of God Almighty. And sometimes we, like Joseph, Judah, his brothers, Jacob, might be discouraged because all we see in front of us right now is the trial, the anguish, and the famine that we're going through. The Bible provides us a perspective when we let its words uh, heal our hearts to lift us up out of the day-to-day, -day, the short-sighted short, you know, uh, shortcomings and thinking and the clouds of our sinful vision to see a bigger view of God's purposes. And from this vantage point, I'll tell you, if you avail yourself of it, your soul will be so encouraged with boldness that it will give you strength to persevere even the greatest of trials. This is the message of Genesis. This is the message of the scriptures. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the great and powerful work of your Holy Spirit, illustrated to us in the transformed life of an individual like Judah. For every sinner in this room saved by grace, we can certainly relate. We think of how you've given us new desires and a new purpose now, having been transformed by the gospel of grace. Lord, I pray through the proclamation of your word today that you would give us grace to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And I pray if there are any in the hearing of this message who have not repented and turned, that they would find in you, dear Jesus, the son required who gave his life in the place of another. That substitution paid their penalty, and therefore, if they trust in you, they will be saved. We thank you, Lord, for this assurance. 
As we praise you once again, Lord, remind us of these things and may they encourage us to be more faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.